Welcome to The Gold Exchange with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. And now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to The Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Adelstein, Marketing Associate here at Monetary Metals, and today I'll be interviewing CEO and founder of Monetary Metals, Keith Wiener, on our Gold Outlook 2022 report. So, Keith, why does Monetary Metals talk about the prices of metals if that isn't actually the main focus of the business or the gold standard in general, for that matter? Interesting question and something that I do think about every once in a while. I think that, number one, everybody is thinking about the price, and so it's the elephant in the room. Number two, this being a vehicle for savings, people are always concerned, you know, is the price going to drop too much, and what does that mean? Number three, there's an awful lot of noise out there, either from the mainstream, the perma bears that always like to predict that, you know, gold is going to drop to $700 an ounce or something like that. It's not that hard to find a bank or some conventional asset manager putting out a call like that pretty much at any given time. It's like it's dinner time somewhere or it's cocktail hour sometime somewhere in the world at any given time that's always somewhere well the same thing there's always some perma bear you know saying that and then conversely there's always some perma bull saying that gold's about to go to the moon and how do people know what's really likely to happen so we've you know put in all this time and energy into analyzing price and putting out something that's been pretty accurate over the years i think so monetary metals has been covering precious metals for about 10 years now and you've been covering that for even longer has the model changed at all? Is it as good now as it was then? And if anything has changed, what have you changed about the model? So the theory is that by looking at the difference between futures price and spot price, you can discern what's going on in the market. That hasn't changed. That's timeless. And that same thing applied to commodities markets going back into the 19th century and beyond. That hasn't changed. What's changed is that I think it was 2017 that we finally launched we built all this software. We built a model to calculate what we call our fundamental price. So there's all these different players that come together in the futures market. The naive assumption, uh, and this is where many of the permeable gold analysts are always looking at, is that everybody is a speculator. Everybody's betting on price, and they're doing so with, with leverage. And so they always try to think, oh, the banks are shorting, not really realizing the banks are actually arbitraging. They're long in one market and short in another. And of course, the banks are short in the market that we collect data on, which is COMEX, the long and other markets which are over the counter or completely bespoke. And so therefore that data is not available, not reported. It doesn't exist, therefore, and the banks are just speculators like everybody else. But there's, in our model, a number of different types of players come together in the market. Obviously, there are speculators that come in the futures market using leverage. And our model is, is asking the question, what if the leverage speculators, which could be pushing the price up at, some, at one time or pushing the price down, what if the leverage speculators, what if the effect were backed out of the market price to get to some fundamental price? And that is where buyers and sellers of metal would be if there weren't speculation going on in the market at the moment. And we launched that in 2017. That model has not changed. There were some interesting anomalies that came about as a result of the broken logistics system through COVID and beyond, where for quite a while we said, you know what, take the number. This model spits out with a grain of salt because the logistics made it very difficult to deliver between New York and, and London. And the lack of ability to deliver meant the lack of ability to do the arbitrage. 
So first you have some bizarre distortions, intraday spread of $25, I think one day. And then after that, a reluctance to take the arbitrage and therefore spreads blew out, became much wider than they should have been. I think things largely sort of reverting back to normal. And I note with interest that as of last Friday, when we took the data, that's the final data available in the 2022 gold market outlook report, that as of that day for gold, the fundamental price and the market price were basically the same, which is not usually the case. Usually the speculators are either bullish or bearish. And on that particular day, not so. The lines do cross over sometimes. And that happened to be one of the days that they, they crossed over. So we talk about it. First of all, I guess, because it's important, it's out there. Number two, there's a lot of what I call wrongful analysis or not even wrong analysis where somebody says, hey, look at the Central Bank of Ireland just bought gold. And the presumption is that's bullish. And you have to look at that and say, okay, the government of Ireland bought a certain amount of gold. That is true. And that also means that tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people sold gold. Which side is right? Is it always true that the side that's more famous is right and the anonymous 100,000 people who sold the gold are wrong? Well, not necessarily. So when gold shifts around from one part of the world to another, one vault to another, there's inflows into the gold ETFs which means outflows in some other vault. And there's a lot of analysis that likes to quote one side of that trade, you know, form an inference or ask you to form an inference. And I think it's important to kind of provide an antidote to say, okay, the truth is this is a two-sided trade and either 100,000 people are wrong or the Central Bank of Ireland is wrong or neither of them really know where the price is going to be tomorrow. And that isn't the point. Meanwhile, here's what we can say. And that's based on looking at the spread between spot and futures. Right. Every report goes into your predictions for the prices of gold and silver for the year. However, in this year's report, you actually spent a lot of time on Bitcoin. Why do you think it's so important to discuss Bitcoin in a gold outlook report? Well, first of all, speaking of the elephant in the room, I mean, in 2021 and into 2022, that has got to be the enormous elephant that everybody's talking about. If you listen to the Bitcoiners, they're saying that Bitcoin is sucking the air out of gold or, or whatever analogy they might use. And I've written about Bitcoin over the years. I often said that I prefer to write about it when it's skyrocketing because that neutralizes one criticism. Oh, you like to kick it when it's down, huh? So most of my writing about Bitcoin historically was during 2017, which was when it was skyrocketing last time it was skyrocketing and ironically or not the last one that i wrote and i said i'm going to put down my bitcoin pen for a while almost perfectly top ticked the bitcoin market although i didn't know it at the time and i think in every one of those reports most of them i said nobody knows i don't know what the next price move in bitcoin is going to be and neither does anyone else the ones that are just predicting it's going to go up have been right because in a rising tide everybody confuses lucky with smart you know since then obviously the price crashed and then it's been, you know, building up again. And then through 2021, you know, it reached a record high, what, $68,000, $69,000. I think it's important to contrast what Bitcoin is versus what gold is. And there's a number of interesting arguments from the Bitcoiners that I see on Twitter every day, which is basically gold is terrible, gold is lousy, gold is bad. And then when you point out that gold has some virtue, then they say, well, Bitcoin is the same. And I'm kind of like, okay, we'll pick a horse. Either gold is terrible and Bitcoin's better, or Bitcoin is the same as gold. You got to pick one, but not both. But I think more fundamentally, everyone kind of wants to understand what's the safety? What's the thing that's going to store my value? And if that's Bitcoin, then maybe I should sell my gold and buy Bitcoin. And then the Bitcoiners surely have to be wondering while this thing is skyrocketing. Where's the top? And when does... So Bitcoin has two phases. It has the skyrocket phase and it has the auger phase. And um, my point is, even during the skyrocket phase, it was not a store of value. A skyrocket isn't storing anything. And then there's the inevitable next phase, which while the skyrocket phase is occurring, the Bitcoiners deny that there is a second phase. Or at best, they, they kind of sneer at it and say, oh, well, any idiot who 
sold then, you know. Yeah, the price went from 20000 to 3000 but, you know, only the idiots sold then. Meanwhile, it's like, wait, that's a two-thirds drawdown. Um, you know, only the idiots sold then because then it went on to $68,000. And so even if you bought a 20, you were smarter to hold on. Three years later, you know, it would be a triple. Ignoring the fact that money has to be stable because the whole point of money is that people are trading in and out of it in between other goods and other transactions. You can't say, well, my, my entire business is going to cease because I accepted money at a high price for money. And then when the price of money collapsed, now I'm not going to do business anymore. I'm going to hold my breath, put my business on pause, lay off my employees, stop paying my vendors and my rent and everything else and wait for the price of money to recover and, and skyrocket to new highs so I can continue and, and press resume on, on my business. So is there a difference between gold and Bitcoin? What is that difference? And so I dwelled on that in this report, arguably maybe, you know, more than I should. We actually trimmed quite a bit out and we're going to be putting out a separate Bitcoin white paper that looks at the full economic picture of it and why Bitcoin is not sound and why Bitcoin is not money. You know, it's something else. It's a zero sum or a negative sum pyramid scheme. While it's rising, everybody's excited. One of my broader themes in my economic work over the year, many years, is this idea that the destruction actually occurs on the way up. So when there's a bull market, everyone thinks that when the bull market finally hits the top and then crashes, that's when the value is being destroyed as a crashing. And my argument is no, actually the value is being consumed the whole time it's going up. And then the crash is only the reflection of what's already occurred. It's the accounting catching up on paper to what's already occurred in reality. The same thing ultimately inevitably occurs in Bitcoin, which is a negative sum game. Anyways, I'll, I'll leave it there. I certainly don't want to make monetary metals about Bitcoin, but I think it's I think it's important to say some of these things that you don't necessarily hear through other sources. So in the Outlook report, you do microeconomic conditions that affect the price of gold and silver, but you also look at the macroeconomic conditions. So let's talk about those macroeconomic conditions. You said something that I found really interesting, that certain moves by either the Federal Reserve or non-monetary forces can actually lead to higher and lower prices. Really interesting point that I'd like to hear about. So Jordan Peterson uses the term, I think he coined it, and the term is, that's a low resolution position. And he's describing when people have this facile, simplistic or overly simplistic idea that doesn't even really capture the nuance of what someone else said, let alone, uh, you know, drill to, drill to the bottom of it. And so that low resolution position, I think is best, best captured. Of course, he wasn't trying to capture a low resolution position. He thought it was the conclusion of, of an entire field of monetary economics. Milton Friedman famously saying, and Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. What that makes people think today is that that's printing money. First of all, it's not printing. Secondly, it's not money. But leaving that aside, and that causes prices to rise, that causes inflation. So they see the price of, and I used in the report, um, chicken. So a friend of mine sent me a picture of a menu or a little piece of a picture of a menu from a restaurant that had um, some chicken dish. I don't know if it was chicken wings or what it was. And the price said market. And my comment was normally you see market price listed for like, Alaskan king crab and lobster and things like that, you know, maybe in a sushi restaurant, uni, you know, sea urchin market price, um, chicken market price, what? So there's some craziness going on in the chicken market. The low resolution position is to say, well, the Fed's printing money, driving up the price of chicken, making it scarce, all these things, whatever. But when you look at the chicken market, what you find is the farmers who grow these birds are getting paid less and the consumers who are eating them are paying more. So the price of chicken is either lower or higher, depending on where in the chicken supply chain you look. So it's a low resolution position to say price is rising. And if the price is actually falling in certain places, how do you reconcile that with Fed printing? You know, printing causes higher prices. How do you 
reconcile that with lower prices? And so the answer is this is not a monetary phenomenon. This is a function of COVID policy that, especially when it comes to food processors and meat packing plants, is, you know, what would they say in an abundance of caution or something like would be the term. You know, if one guy uh, in the meatpacking plant, you know, his kid was in a school, had a friend who had a COVID exposure, then suddenly dad and everybody in his department, you have to go home for two weeks in quarantine. And so the meat packing plants can't keep fully staffed and because they can't keep fully staffed, they can't put out the product that they put that they normally would put out in normal times. And so they're not buying as many birds as they were. And that puts the farmers that grow these birds in a really bad position uh, because some of those birds are going to reach maturity, not get bought. And then because of other regulations, it's very hard to sell chickens. If you're the farmer, other than to a meatpacking plant, those birds will have to be destroyed. The farmers are taking dreadful losses. Meanwhile, a shortage of supply to the supermarkets and the restaurants means can higher prices on the other side. This is part of the COVID lockdown policy. This is nothing to do with the monetary system. And all over the world and in many, many different supply chains, we're seeing, you know, supply chain disruption due to regulation, due to COVID, or due to just the consequences of locking down and then a whiplash of unlocking. All of that rippling through various supply chains, causing shortages and problems, skyrocketing prices in one place, falling prices in another place, low resolution position being, oh yeah, money printing, higher prices. So every year in the Outlook report, you do price calls for gold and silver, but you said that this year was actually one of the hardest that you've ever had to make. Can you tell us why this year was specifically so difficult? We're at a fork in the road. At the same time that the various stimuli and the benefits, if I dare use the popular misnomer of monetary stimulus, a lot of these things are kind of wearing off. And, you know, both fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus have a diminishing effect. And, you know, just like a, a drug. So imagine somebody is overtired, I don't know, he's a medical student, and he's just studying and studying and studying, and then he has his rounds in the hospital and everything else. He's dead tired after three days of no sleep, but he has to go and take another exam. So he doses up on some cocaine. Well, that'll get him by, sort of, kind of. Now, imagine he comes home after a full day of exams. Now it's been almost four days without sleep. Now he's really, really, really tired. But his girlfriend is driving up for the weekend. He wants to see her, so he takes another dose of cocaine. Well, it takes a bigger dose. Now with, you know, four days, 96 hours without sleep, it just takes even more dosage to prop him up. And um, I think we're at that point, beyond that point. At the same time that we would actually need a bigger dose to keep things continuing, this is the moment of the fattest thing. We're going to tighten monetary conditions. We're going to reduce our balance sheet, sell assets, and actually hike interest rates. So what we've seen is at the margin, you know, price is falling. So Bitcoin proving to be a risk asset and not money. Price of Bitcoin, you know, basically collapsed. We're seeing the price of, you know, various tech stocks, other more aggressive high beta stock indices, you know, crashing. People think the stock market is the economy, which is not true. I'll just leave it at that. It's not equities that drive this. It's credit. The underlying issue is every producer is in debt up to their eyeballs and every consumer as well. By producer, I mean the farmers, the miners, the manufacturers, the distributors, uh, the truckers, the retailers, everybody's taken on debt. And COVID, the ones that stayed afloat, stayed afloat by borrowing even more. That debt all has to be serviced. It takes a certain amount of not just revenues. You don't pay, you don't service debt with your gross revenues. It's gross revenues minus expenses equals net profit. It takes a net profit to service your debt. What happens, what people call recession, uh, especially in a Fed-dominated world, which, which we've been in for many decades, is that at the margin, the debtor is unable to service his debts, which means he defaults, his creditor seizes his 
assets, so he's destroyed. Equity, you know, the equity owners are, are wiped out. Usually the owner is also personally devastated from that. It was a small business. And then meanwhile, the creditor, yeah, they seize the assets and they're trying to sell it. But this is happening across the economy, about the market for those kinds of assets. Imagine if you're a creditor to restaurants and you're seizing, um, you know, booths and benches and bar stools and, you know, deep fryers for kitchens and grills and things like that. And you and all the other creditors in the restaurant industry across the board. And you think you're going to go liquidate that and recover what was owed to you. You have another thing coming. There's no bid. You know, nobody's starting a new restaurant in that environment. And if there was one guy starting a new restaurant, there's so many people trying to dump that equipment that um, that guy's going to get a great deal if he's in a position to open a restaurant in the middle of that. And so the creditors themselves get under stress. The creditors, you know, begin to default. And so you get this cascading effect. Think of like dominoes. First, it's just one little push. It's one marginal debtor defaults. But then that hits the marginal creditor. The marginal creditor, creditor is also himself a debtor. That debtor defaults. And then the dominoes are tipping one by one. And if that's not contained, you have 2008, except this time it'll be worse than 2008 because the solution to 2008 was to push out more credit, which means more debt. So the world is much more indebted now at lower interest rates and therefore higher asset prices than it was in 2008. And so if this really begins cascading, this is going to be quite the uh, catastrophe. So if the world is going in that direction, then my price call for gold and silver, and by the way, gold and silver can diverge, especially in a scenario like that. My price call for gold and silver would be one thing. But if, on the other hand, if the Fed says never again, we're not going to allow that, which they basically have said, and now we're going to pick up a bazooka and, and first threaten to use it and then actually use it if we need to. If the Fed is going to get ahead of this thing and then engage in sufficient monetary stimulus and credit easing, including lowering of interest rates, sufficient to get ahead of this before it really gets started, then that would be a very different macro world versus the scenario where the Fed is allowing it to happen and even dogmatically and rigidly sticking to, we said we're going to tighten and damn it, we're going to tighten. Which direction the, the world goes in and the Fed goes in, you know, it, it's going to be a pretty different call for prices of gold and silver. So standing on that fork without knowing at this moment in time which way the Fed's going to go, you know, I have no particular ability to, to be a Fed watcher or a Kremlin watcher. Uh, I'm not one of those people that looks at how sick, you know, Alan Greenspan's briefcase is or whatever the equivalent is for Jay Powell. And I don't know. I'm not sure anybody else knows either. There's a lot of, you know, rumor and belief and theories and so forth out there. I just want to highlight one of them that I think is absolutely wrong. When people say the central banks want to reset things, the central banks are at the peak of their power right now. Why would somebody who is in power want to reset anything? As far as they're concerned, the world is configured optimally with themselves in power at the top, number one. And number two, in reset, usually the people who used to have power don't end up in power in the new world order that it comes after such a reset. In fact, often they lose their heads. There's enough populist anger out there that the people that are perceived to have caused the problem get killed in the revolution that follows. So I don't think they want to reset anything. I think what they want to do is keep the gravy train going. And in addition to that, I don't think they actually think that they're skirting with complete total collapse and an end of the system as we know it, the failure of the dollar. I don't think they really perceive that. So I think they're just looking at it as, okay, okay, you know, this is yet another one of the situations that comes up every few years. We have to turn the knobs, slide the sliders, move the levers, you know, shift into different gears. 
how do we centrally plan the economy? How do we manipulate the machine to keep everything going, getting it back to the even keel or the permanent plateau, the end of the credit cycle, all these terms that were used? How do we get back to the good old days? I think that's how they're thinking about it. But do they perceive that we're really at the brink right now? Um, and I, I and others have written about the things that Janet Yellen and Bernanke and others, what they were saying in late 2007, early 2008. At that time, they didn't perceive it. They said, well, subprime, it's just subprime. Subprime is contained, blah, 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 blah. We have the policy tools we need. They were hubristic and, and a bit blind. And, and that isn't really a criticism of them as people. It's a criticism, rather, of the whole idea of central planning. I'm not saying these people are stupid and smarter people could have done it better. I'm saying central planning is impossible. Nobody could do it better. And we need to move beyond the, the cargo cult of central planning rather than saying, well, we need smarter central planners. That's a very odd endorsement of Janet Yellen. So <laughs> speaking of Janet Yellen, when the Fed and Janet Yellen were messaging that they were going to hike rates, how did you know that they could only hike them slightly and only keep them there for such a short amount of time while so many other people in the community were just oblivious to this fact? Well, one, the facile view, well, you know, prices are rising, you know, too much money printing, they're going to have to raise rates to get ahead of it. Like the conventional theory, you know, every, you know, the Keynesians, and so Janet Yellen is a card-carrying member of something called the New Keynesian School. So the Keynesians, the monetarists, and I think the Austrians largely all kind of share the same quantity of theory of money view. And all of them basically agreed that it's time to, to hike rates. And I don't share that view. So I guess in that sense, that was easy. But looking at things as I do, I say, you know, we've been in this long-term trend of falling interest rates at that time, 34 years. As of 2015 now, it's been 41 years since 1981 when the interest rate peaked. And the driver for falling interest rates is that when the interest rate is above marginal productivity, that is the marginal productivity producer can't afford the interest rate as it is. And there's only really, the demand for credit only really firms up on a downtick in interest rates. And I think the easiest way that I can illustrate this is look at, and this is like, this is exactly the example that I was pointing to at that time. And I'll point to it again. The car makers offer a subsidy. It's called buy my car and I will finance it for you at 0% for 72 months, six years of 0% money. Now, even when the Fed funds rate is 15 basis points. That is a subsidy that costs the car makers money because they have a cost to administer the program. Their co the cost of borrowing, of course, they're not borrowing at the Fed funds rate. They're borrowing at something higher than that in the bond market. And of course, they have losses. You know, when they repossess cars, sometimes they're smashed up or you know, otherwise damaged. And so they have losses, they have administrative costs, they have other things. The actual cost, even if their cost of borrowing money is zero, I'm sure the actual cost to them is probably 2%. But that's when interest rates are zero. When the interest rate goes up or the market rate goes up, the cost of that subsidy increases. And so I think it was 2017, somewhere around there, I wrote an article looking at Ford and trying to do some back of the envelope math of how much that subsidy was costing them and comparing it to their total gross profit. So their gross profit was five or $6 billion. The cost of that subsidy, I'm sorry, the increase. So that subsidy had a baseline cost when interest rates were zero. The increase in that cost of that subsidy when interest rates had spiked, if you want to call that little molehill spike after the Fed moved up, the increase in the cost was something like a billion and a half dollars or a quarter of Ford's total gross profit. So the cost to the automakers is massive. Now, why would they be doing this? Well, because their marketing department understands that if they were to raise the cost of interest that they charge their customers who bought their cars to whatever the market rate would be at that moment that the drop in volume would cost them even more than the subsidy does. 
the Ford's choice is either continue to subsidize it and lose a billion and a half, or stop subsidizing it and let the cost go up and lose even more. And they did the rational thing and they chose to lose less. And so in a in a centrally banked world, sometimes the choice is lose more versus lose less. So I was able to, to see that and say a marginal at the margin, there's no demand for credit except on a down ticking rates. So if they think they're gonna hike rates, what they're gonna find is not only is there no demand for credit, but at the same time, all of the investor class is just stuffed to the gills with dollars looking for a home. And that's why that's why the interest rate keeps falling. It's the dollars chasing a yield and there isn't as much source of yield as there is demand for yield in the dollar world. This is all perversity. This is not saying anything good about the dollar world, by the way. This is one of the many perversities of how it, how it works, uh, that you can look at it and say the interest rate is falling. The Fed is not bigger than the market. It's the other way around. And the market is still in a falling mode, and I'd say was even more vengeance than it was back in 2015. So we'll see what the Fed continues to think that they can do as we get to March. You know, in the end of January, they were pretty boastful that they can, you know, begin tightening, if not actually hiking in March. We'll see as we get to March. So yesterday we had a terrible uh, jobs report. Everybody expected jobs growth and we had jobs contraction. We'll see how long they continue to play this elaborate and high stakes game of chicken before they blink. Who knows? I can't predict what people are going to do. I can say they can't win this one, but I don't know how long they're going to cling to it before they before they finally uh, flinch. So, Keith, so much of the conventional analysis from macroeconomics, microeconomics, gold prices is just either wrong or, as you like to say, not even wrong. So can you give us your price calls for this year? I can and I did. And they're in our printed Gold Outlook Report 2022. I think I'd be better off leaving it there and encouraging people to read not just the magic number. This is the famous thing from Douglas Adams in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. For anybody who's read it, you know, the conclusion is 42. But saying that number 42 doesn't really tell you what the books are about. You have to read the books to see why the number 42 is meaningful. And so I would encourage people to read the report and see how we arrive at the call that we arrive at. The one thing that I can say is that the incentives to buy gold are, are only going up. For more you know, on that and why, why I think that, I encourage everybody to read the report. Well, thanks for your time, Keith, and the great insight as always. Make sure to check out the full Gold Outlook 2022 report in the description and subscribe to the Gold Exchange podcast. See you next time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Go to goldexchangepodcast.com to learn how you can earn a yield on gold paid in gold.